In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, and we open this book watching him having a great career. Nehemiah has a really cush career. He's got a pension, I'm sure, if they did those things back then. He has influence. He has power. He is at the right hand of the king. I want you guys to consider the creature comforts that Nehemiah possesses as we enter into this book. He had the king's charge. We know from history that cupbearers were over the king's administrations. They had charge over various accounts of the king. Nehemiah would also stock the king's wine cellar. So a cupbearer wasn't just someone who took the cup and sipped it to see if it's still poisoned. He was in charge of food from farm to table because he had to ensure that at every stage the king would not be poisoned or killed. This is a high position. He would also have the king's confidence. How many people can say they have the king's confidence? Because the king had to trust Nehemiah with his life. If someone wanted to assassinate the king and poison him, you go to the cupbearer. Well, you best trust that cupbearer with your life if he's in that position. And so it's not going to be surprising when we see Nehemiah and the king have an intimate conversation because the cupbearer would have been one of the few who were in the inner circle of the king. Um, so he had this high position. He had charge. He had confidence. He's in the highest courts of the Persian empire. And he was the king's, all that to say, the king's cupbearer. So did he have it comfy? Oh my goodness. He ate the best of the food. I mean, he's testing it all before it comes. He's getting it fresh, not leftovers from the king's table. He's getting it fresh. He's got the best stuff. He's uh, with the powerful. He's got influence. He's got nice cushions to sit on. He's got nice attire. He's probably given a great house. He's got a great salary. He's in high places. Nehemiah, in other words, has the position in life that you don't just up and leave. With such a position, what would it take to get Nehemiah to leave this situation, to leave Babylon and go to the puny rubbles of the rebuilding of Jerusalem? What would cause him to turn his back on the world, so to speak, to follow Jesus? What brought to my mind, Pilgrim's Progress came to my mind, the opening sentences of that great allegory. Uh, Do you remember it? It says this, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a place where there was a den, and there I I laid down to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamt a dream. And in my dream, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing by a path with a book open in his hand and a great burden upon his back. His face was turned from his own house, which stood nearby. And I saw him open his book and read. Then he began to weep. No longer being able to control his feelings, he broke out with a mournful cry saying, What shall I do? Pilgrim's Progress is about the man who leaves the city of destruction to go to the new Jerusalem. And what causes this journey? We have no indication that he has a hard life in the city of destruction. He's got a family. He's got kids. They love him. But what turns his house toward his back and gets him looking for a new direction he wants to leave is because there's this burden on his back and it's causing him to cry out. What drove Christian to leave was a burden. What drives Nehemiah to leave is a burden. Burdens make Babylon unbearable. And if we want to properly leave the spirit of this age and the practices of the Babylonian empire all around us, a burden is what will properly give us a clean break. And this is what Nehemiah has. So just a reminder, what we mean by leaving Babylon is that Babylon is, it's the, it's a spirit, right? Babylon was an empire. It's now the Persian empire in Nehemiah, but the same spirit of domination of, of, of empire, of antichrist, uh, 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 
values are being passed down. And we see this repeated in the book of Revelation, right? That there's another, the spirit of Babylon doesn't quite die. We live amidst Babylon. We live in Babylonia with Babylonians. We live in an anti-Christ culture that's setting itself against the kingdom of God. We want to leave this and be fully pursuing the kingdom of God, building the new Jerusalem. That's where we want to be. So it's not enough for us to reject Babylon from our minds. We must also eject Babylon from our hearts. And this is where Christianity um, in our culture needs to realize the difference. Every Christian will tell you, oh yeah, we reject these things. But in their hearts, it's taken root. And in their practices, there are habits that are the habits of a Babylonian. Remember how Israel left Egypt, but it took a long time for God to get Egypt to leave Israel. And this is what we're after. We're after leaving Babylon. So we're going to see Nehemiah as a model of leaving the highest places of Babylon to go and do a hard work. And it was a burden that drove him. So real quick recap of this this era. Um, Babylon falls. Persia takes over. And remember, Persia allows Ezra to lead um, exiles back home. And they build the temple. Then... No, sorry, that was Zerubbabel in the book of Ezra. Zerubbabel leads the people to build a temple. Then Ezra, this was last week, Ezra gets to go and lead more exiles back, and he brings the word of God to them. So we have worship established with the temple. We have the word established through Ezra's teaching. And now Nehemiah is sent in the third wave of people who return from Babylon, and he's tasked with building the walls of Jerusalem. So burdens make Babylon unbearable. Let's now read Nehemiah chapter one. We'll read all the way to the end of chapter two. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, Oh, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, here's his prayer. Oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Oh, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts be in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them And bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. That place, of course, is Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name And give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, chapter 2, verse 1. This is four months later. We're in the year 445 BC. Nisan, by the way, is the month of Passover as well. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, 
In other words, uh, Nehemiah is probably hosting a pretty large gathering. The Persians were known for their drunken parties. So Nehemiah is really busy right now. He's got wine before him. He's working. He's on the clock. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, which is a problem because he's sad in his presence. You're, you're part of hosting a party for the king. You can't be a party pooper. You cannot be a party pooper. So this, this, he's a little worried here. Verse two. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. You didn't test positive for COVID today, so you're working. This is nothing but sadness of heart. See, the king knows Nehemiah. There's a confidence, right? They're close. They're closer than we might think. Um, then I was very much afraid. Why is he afraid? Is he afraid his head's going to be cut off? He's probably afraid because this is what he's been praying for. Don't blow it, Nehemiah. Have you ever been there? Like you're waiting and waiting for something. Four months have gone by since chapter one. You're waiting and waiting and then moments there and you're totally afraid. Ah, I'm not going to say the right thing. I'm going to blow it. I'm going to miss my opportunity. I'm going to look like a fool or worse. He's going to say no. <laughs> Here he goes. I was very afraid. Um, verse three. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said, presumably in one breath, he prays right there. And in verse five, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you may send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked. Sounds astonishing. So he adds there at the end. For the good hand of my God was upon me. You may remember last week, Ezra said that five times. The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is following the same vein of, I'm not going to send petition after petition to the king to get my will done. I'm going to pray and wait. And I'm going to let the hand of God be upon me and the hand of God to orchestrate things. It's very different than um, the way we see a lot of Christian ministry working in our current moment. Verse 9. Then I came to the gov. So now he's on the journey. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. That's beyond the Euphrates. You know, when you're the empire, everything's just beyond our borders, whatever's out there. Um, Beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So he has permission, right? He has access now because of these letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, uh, the Ammonite servant, heard this, It displeased them greatly that someone had the audacity. Someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We're introduced to them. We're not going to see them much tonight, but we're going to see them a lot next week. So we're introduced to them. So the cloud, the conflict is introduced, and we're going to see it in full force next time. So in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So great is the rubble is what he's describing. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. 
Now, he started at the Valley Gate. He came back to the Valley Gate. So he's presumably done a complete circle around the city. In verse 16, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. But then, verse 17, I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? This is presumably, of course, in the daytime. Sometime later, he's gathered them. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So what that is all shorthand for is Nehemiah giving the testimony of how God has provided for this trip and this project. The good hand of God's on me. The king did this. He's giving them all these good reports so that they're encouraged. God is in this. Join me in what he's doing. Or FOMO, fear of missing out. So they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Verse 19. But... When Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it. I just, I'm sorry, I just say, you know how like the villains often in stories have like the little sidekick? I just see it. Tobiah's like the macho and then, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sambalot's the macho and Tobiah's kind of the high pitched like wise guy. Um, I just can never get that out of my head. It's like Jafar and his little parrot guy. <laughs> All right, so when Sambalot the horn is, thank you, you're welcome, you'll never get that out of your head, I guess. And Tobiah the Ammonite, servant of Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Get out of here. Basically, that's what he says. Mm-hmm. Why does, here's the first question I think most of us are probably confronted with in this story, is why does Nehemiah ask about the condition of Jerusalem, the exiles there, in the plush courts? Um, and then why does, when he hears the report of walls being burned and gates being destroyed, why does he then break down, weep, and fast for days? Just walls. What's the big deal? The best that I think we can relate to is that this is the feeling of what happened on September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers came down. There was a feeling of exposure, of we're not as invincible, of a symbol of our power and influence over the world has come down. Nehemiah knows, because we don't live in walled cities anymore, um, he knows what the Jews would have known, what all people back then would have felt, is that walls were incredibly important for three reasons. First of all, walls protect life. They build homes and they form identity. So you have walls, that means the bad guys can't just come and kill, rape, and pillage everyone. Right? You're protected. You, so that means now you can build families and homes within the walls because I'm not going to just build this to watch it come crashing down by the next season of raiding. Um, you can also build an identity because now the city can create its own culture without it being influenced by other religions, if you will. So and for Israel, this is really important that they can, they can do what Yahweh told them to do and worship him without being uh, diluted by the pagan neighbors around them. Um, he weeps over the walls because Israel's lost this. They don't have it. It's important. He knows they need a wall. Second, he weeps because broken walls mean that there are broken lives. There are broken families. There are, there's a broken identity. These things that a city with walls would have is not there because the walls are not there. What would have happened to make the walls come down? Nehemiah's heart's broken because he understands people were killed. Women were raped. Children were slaughtered. Things were taken. An identity is gone. The people feel like they are the dust of the earth. Nehemiah wants to go and lift them up and give them purpose and hope. 
He weeps over the walls because ultimately, I think what we also need to see in this is that he weeps over the condition of creation. Jerusalem's condition at this moment is the condition of the world at this moment. And also, if you look at verse 3, this is chapter 1, verse 3, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There's, there is a subtle allusion here to Genesis 1, verse 2. And the earth was without form and it was void. There was no structure. There's no wall. There's no safety in there. There's nothing living in it. There's no purpose. And there was darkness over the surface of the deep. That's how we see the, the opening of the Bible. And what does God do? God breaks in with his word and he forms it. He gives it structure. He fills it. And maybe I think we'll get into this next week. No promises, but it's my goal um, that next week we'll talk more about this concept of the walls uh, because the Garden of Eden is actually described in Genesis as a walled garden. And so God comes in, he creates a walled garden in place of this chaos. What Nehemiah wants to do is he wants to enter into this chaos and create a walled garden Mm -hmm. so that Israel can reproduce the new Edenic land which the promised land was supposed to be. This is, um, by the way, how uh, uh, Jeremiah saw Jerusalem when it was defeated by the Babylonians, he describes it as being a um, reversion of creation, going back to the beginning before creation happened. So Jeremiah says like this in Jeremiah 4.23, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. And the heavens, and I looked at the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. So Jeremiah sees Babylon destroying Jerusalem. What does he say? I looked, and behold, the earth was without form and void. The, the, what God created in Israel is being decreated. And so Jeremiah is weeping because he wants to go and bring the purposes of God to the city again. He is moved with a deep and heavy burden. Do you, brothers and sisters, ever feel this burden when we look at the broken world around us? We see the ruins. They're obvious. They're apparent. But sometimes we look at them and say, well, that's because they aren't getting their act together. If they would just do this, things would be better. That's a hardened heart. Nehemiah has a broken heart who says, I see the brokenness and I want to go mend and heal. A burden like this is the difference between a good work and God's work. A burden like this is the difference between a good work and God's work. There's tons of opportunities for us to go out and do good works. Um, the world is all about, you know, wanting to get people to do more good works. But, but, but the Christian is trying to do in good work, they're trying to do God's work, which is a higher, because only God can bring healing. Good works just kind of mend things, and like, there's weeds, pull the weeds out. God's work comes in and says, weeds be gone forever, and bring fruit. God's work goes above and beyond. God's work is resurrection. And the Christian wants to just not be giving life support to a dying world. The Christian wants to come in and bring resurrection life from Christ to the world. And this is why a burden is important because the Christian who is moved to leave the world and to leave Babylon by a burden will be the Christian who's doing God's work and bringing God's life into the broken world, not just, well, I'll put this rock back where it once was. Nehemiah is doing far more than that. And it's because of this burden that we saw in 2 verse 8 that God's hand was upon him. God holds the people who are broken for the world, who have burdens. That's where God's hand comes. He supports people with burdens. The people just do what they want to do with their hands. Well, God's hand's not going to come alongside that. In this, we have some incredible encouragement because like Nehemiah, you could look at situation and you could say, this is unbearable. This is overwhelming. I, I, I can't imagine this. Um, But Christ, like Nehemiah, models this kind of burden for us. A burden weighs on the gap between 
good news and bad news. Okay, what I mean by this is the greater the gap between good news and bad news, the greater that gap, the greater the burden that you will carry. So Nehemiah is in the palace. He hears this bad news from Jerusalem. Now, if he expected, oh yeah, duh, that's what those people deserve. They should be here. Like we're all the life. This is where the culture is. Um, If that's his attitude, he would have no burden. But in Nehemiah's mind is Jerusalem should be the thriving city on a hill where the kingdom of God is overflowing to the nations around it. That's good news. But what he hears is something totally short of that. And in that great gap, that's where the burden weighs on the Christian's heart. So if we look at the world and say that's what they deserve, you will never have a burden. But if we look at the world and say, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, and yet look how much we've fallen short of the glory of God, the greater this gap between good news and bad news, the heavier the burden will rest upon us, and the more unbearable we'll find Babylon, and the more we will desire to brace, uh, to, to press into the kingdom of God and to bear the good news in our being. This is how Nehemiah sees it. And this is also how God sees it. The burden was so heavy that it brought Christ down to us. You already know John 3.16. For God so loved. loved. Important right there for this purpose. He's so loved. When he's like, yeah, they need help. I guess I'll go and do something. He's so loved that he gave his son. The love pulled Christ down. They say you become what you love. Well, God so loves humanity that he became human. That's what we're seeing. Philippians 2 verse 5, one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And um, those of you who've been around for a couple years know that this becomes the creed we recite during um, Lent. Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Another way to translate that is a thing to just clutch to. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's this downward mobility here. He's equal to God, but he's willing to become human. Not just human, but a servant. Not just a servant, but one who will die. And not just one who will die, but one who will die the most humiliating, undignified form of death. He goes all the way down. And if you accept, as I do, the doctrine that Christ also entered into Hades upon his death, he went as far down as possible. This is the burden that Christ carried for us. Now, Nehemiah becomes a bit of an undeniable foreshadow of all of this for us. As Christ was in the great courts and came down, so Nehemiah leaves the great courts and comes down, both of them to Jerusalem. Christ came with a message from the king, as did Nehemiah, as he's holding the letters from the king. Christ tells the Jews, hey, I only say what I have heard my father say. I am but the messenger. I am bringing his word to you. Uh, Nehemiah in 2 verse 12 rides, uh, look at that in verse 12, 2 verse 12, I rose in the night and I had a few men with me. And I, had no, I had told no one what was in my heart. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. <laughs> Christ rode into Jerusalem on an animal on Palm Sunday. And when he did so, and he saw the city, what did Christ do? He wept. Nehemiah, when he heard the news of Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. When Christ then wept over the city, he entered into the temple, and there he saw (laughs) uh, Tobias and... uh, uh, There he is, Sambalot. Sambalot and Tobias, and he drove them out of the temple, right? He cast out the thieves. Nehemiah comes in on the donkey. He has wept for Jerusalem. And he throws out Sambalot and Tobiah. He kicks them out of Jerusalem. Christ, through his work of salvation, is building the new Jerusalem in us as people. And one day we will see that Revelation 21 says, I saw the new Jerusalem come down as a bride 
right? And we're the bride of Christ. So we see that Christ is building, Nehemiah is building. Burdens make Babylon unbearable. We need a burden. Burdens are what saves the world. The burden of Christ saved us. But while a burden makes Babylon unbearable, Christ leads us into the new Jerusalem. So we're not just giving up. I, I'm so tired of Christians. or, or, or it's, I hear this a lot with teenagers because I teach high school Bible. And um, it's often this attitude of like, oh, yes, we have to give up so much to be Christians. But it's, you know, it's worth it for heaven. Okay. I have a lot of work to do this year. That's always what I think when I hear those things. I'm like, I have a lot of work to do. I'm glad I have you for a few more years. (laughs) Um, See, we don't just leave Babylon. We enter the new Jerusalem. Yes, it's in shambles. Yes, we're not perfect. But Christ will come and make it perfect. And we are doing what we can to get things prepared. Um, For the sake of the world. right? We can't invite the world to a great salvation if we have nowhere to sit them down in our living room. All this sin and rubble in the way. It's like, come on, world, you need Christ. And they come to us like, you're just like us. You just sing quirky songs and hear, we hear TED Talks and you hear this lame pastor. <laughs> like, like, this, is, this is what it looks like unless we actually leave Babylon and we convert ourselves to the kingdom of God. And we think differently. We sing differently. We talk differently. We organize our lives differently, which is part of the reason why we have over the last couple of years made efforts to create our church worship to feel very different then a because often what it sometimes can feel like is you go to a concert it's just got jesus in it and then a pastor preaches and we call that sunday church um but christian worship should be a little bit different yeah than what everyone else is doing um i'm I'm sorry i went off the rails there didn't i um Oh, yeah, so we're not just leave. The burden doesn't just make Babylon unbearable. Now we're miserable. It uh, it causes us to leave Babylon and yearn for a new city. As Abraham left his country, Hebrews tells us he was looking for the city that had no foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the new Jerusalem. That's where we're going. We're going for something better. It's a great trade. It's not a suffer because heaven's better than hell. <laughs> oh, there's too many Eeyores in the church, spiritually. I mean, okay. There are emotional Eeyores, and yeah, we love them. Um, okay. So he's helped by God's hand. And I want to I land this look at Nehemiah with how are we helped by God's hand. Because burdens are heavy, and a burden can crush us if we don't know what we're doing with this. So we must understand that if we are willing to be burdened for the world around us, we must know. That God's hand comes alongside us. He carries the burden with us. And we know that's true because Christ came to us. He has shouldered the burden with us. We are not alone. We have an example and we have a life that's more than my own life. I receive life from Christ and can share that. That's our model. So yes, we can have a burden. A burden will make Babylon unbearable. But the good hand of our God will come alongside us and lead us forward. So... Um, we are helped by God's hand. I want to present three ways in this text. They're very obvious. Uh, one is very obvious. Two are less obvious. But they're definitely there. Once I show you, you're like, oh yeah, how did I not see that? Um, so the first and most obvious is that we're helped by God's hand. He helps us with our burden. Um, what we need to do is one, we need to persist in patient prayer. We must persist in patient prayer. So I receive this burden and I'm hurt for the brokenness of the world and I am feeling compelled. I'm broken by my own sin and I'm feeling compelled to press forward into the kingdom of God. I feel this. What do I do? It can crush you. Your sin can make you feel great shame. You can feel like I am unworthy of being saved. You can feel like there's so much work to do. I'm a mess. I am the heap of rubble in Jerusalem and not even an animal can walk around me. I'm such a mess. We need to pray. Persist in patient prayer. What prayer does is it is the lifting up of our burden to God so that he can hold it with us. No man is an island. No man should be cut off from God. No man should bear this alone. Christ did that. He bore it alone. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I don't have to, per- so I don't have to forsake Brandon or Tim or Rhonda when they have a burden. 
I'll carry it with them. Prayer is how we lift this to God. Prayer is how we talk about it with God. (laughs) We wouldn't need as many counselors if we had more prayers. Um, There's still a place for that, of course. I'm not being one-sided on this. I'm just saying that I think we're too quick to, to psychologize our problems, and we're not quick enough to release them in prayer. The reason I believe is because you go to a psychologist and or a therapist or whatever, a counselor, and you immediately get feedback, right? You feel better about yourself quite immediately, uh, or you can. Um, but prayer sometimes doesn't feel like that. You do it, and you're like, okay. <laughs> the birds are singing the same song they sang when I said, dear Lord. Like, nothing's changed in the world, and I still feel miserable. But that's where I'm emphasizing we must persist in patient prayer because prayer does change us and it does change the world, but we rarely give it the time it needs to do its work on us. If you're trying to leave Babylon and develop kingdom habits, hello, have you ever tried to break a bad habit? It takes patient, persistent work. And this is what we need to do from head to toe. Our soul is soaked in bad Babylonian habits. We need to pray persistently and patiently, trusting that little by little, as God said, I'm going to drive the enemies out before you when you enter the land. Little by little, he's going to drive out the passions and the sins and the demons until we become more fruitful, little by little. We must persist patiently in prayer. Nehemiah did. It's easy to think he just prayed this great grandiose prayer in chapter 1, and then all of a sudden things began working. Not true. I pointed out to you that verse 1 of chapter 1 says it was the month of Chislev. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says it's the month of Nisan. Now, I did the work for you because most of us don't understand this calendar system. It's about four months. He's persisting in prayer for four months. How do we have such a concise record of Nehemiah's prayer? Because he was praying this prayer for four months. You've been praying the same prayer for months? It is not that hard to describe what that prayer is like. And many of us find it helpful to have certain prayers that we pray over and over because it brings the soul into a deeper place as we pray this petition over and over and over. There's this meeting with God that can happen. So Nehemiah is disciplined in his prayer life. He prayed for four months, um, but God doesn't do anything for four months. Like, why not? And I think we ask this all the time. Why doesn't God just answer prayers right away? Well, because if he did, you've just reduced the great God to a vending machine. Right. I insert the right coins and I get things right away. Yeah, sometimes they get stuck and you shake it or you have to ask somebody. But um, that's not what God is to us. He isn't someone we just come to and say, fix this, fix this, help me, provide for me. There are times we need to pray things because things are out of our control. But prayer is primarily a communion with God, not an asking for things. It's a being with. So sometimes he doesn't answer right away because he loves that you're coming to him. And he's like, I'm going to hold up just long enough till you begin to love it back. And then you're going to know the great communion You will participate in the triune life of the Trinity in your prayers if you're willing to patiently persist. What if you gave whatever prayers you've decided to pray, whatever structure, if you pray Psalms, read Scripture, pray the Lord's Prayer, uh, have a list of people who pray for, like, however you organize this, what if you organize that? And I always encourage people to try it for 30 days straight without changing it at all, because then you will, you, you won't understand what it does to you unless you give it 30 days. But what if we actually gave things 40? Not for you, uh, four months. What if we gave it that long? We are so impatient. We are Babylonians. We're impatient. Do you remember Nebuchadnezzar wanting to chop off everyone's limbs because he wasn't getting things right away? Some of you remember that earlier in Daniel. Why the delay? Um, that's one reason. That's not actually even in my notes, but that's one reason. Um, the first reason I wrote down was God makes us wait to test the weight of our burden. How great is your burden? Well, okay, so we've all seen something like, oh, that's terrible, we pray for it. Two days later, you've forgotten all about it. But if you pray for this for four months, God's like, that's a burden, and that burden's developing. So we know that Nehemiah is truly called because Nehemiah has not ceased calling upon God. I love how Charles Spurgeon puts this, um, one of the great, he had a one of the great teachers on prayer. He taught a lot of things, but he said this on his sermon in Nehemiah. 
He said that the man of one thing, you know, is a formidable man. So that's, in other words, the man devoted to one passion, one purpose. It's a formidable man. And when one single passion has absorbed the whole of his manhood, something will be sure to come of it. Depend upon that. The desire of his heart will develop into some open demonstration, especially if he talks the matter over with God in prayer. Something did come of this for Nehemiah. Before long, Nehemiah had an opportunity. And we see that in chapter 2. Then Spurgeon admonishes, Men of God, if you want to serve God and cannot find the favorable occasion, wait a while in prayer. And your opportunity will break upon your path like a sunbeam. Why the delay? God wants to test our burden. Second, the delay is so that our prayers shoot faster and further. Because when you're honing your prayer for four months, do you know how quick you can draw when the moment's ready? This is what Nehemiah does. The king says, why are you sad? What's going on? And then he says, what? I pray to the God of heaven. Then he answered him. The space between question and answer cannot have possibly taken more than three seconds. We get antsy at two seconds. So (laughs) Nehemiah offers up what I've called arrow prayers because he's been honing this prayer for four months. It's sharp. The feathers are right. His bow is stretched. He knows how to fire this prayer. And when the moment comes, the the arrow is in the quiver and he shoots it up to God. Spurgeon puts it like this. Nehemiah's prayer in 2 verse 4 was what we call exclamatory prayer. I call arrow prayers. It's, in other words, prayer which, as it were, hurls a dart and then is done. It was not the type of prayer that stands knocking at mercy's door. Knock, knock, knock. But it was the concentration, hear this, it was the concentration of many knocks into one. It was begun and completed, as it were, with one stroke, one shot. The exclamatory prayer, your arrow prayer, I desire to commend to you as among the very best forms of prayer. These prayers are more powerful. Your arrow is made sharper because you have been sharpening it and target practicing for four months. That's the key. If your prayer life consists of spontaneous, random, ah, help me! (laughs) Not a lot of knocks concentrated into that one prayer, right? But the four months of prayer, intense intercession, and seeking God and communing with Him, suddenly you're going to find that your heart is full of these arrows, and you're going to be firing them in more opportunities, in more places, and when you do, heaven's going to hear them with weight. They're going to pierce the throne of God. This is what we see in Nehemiah's life. So he's praying persistently, patiently. But the third reason for the delay, we've seen that God's testing our weight. He's he's enabling us to sharpen our arrows so our quiver is full of ace fires. Um, But third, the delay is um, because this makes it easier in our opportunity. Four months of prayer will teach you how to see God's hand and when it's time to move. How easy would four minutes before the king of Persia be if you've spent four months before the king of heaven? Right? Nehemiah said he was scared. The king's like, what's up? He's like, I was scared. But he drew on this deep well of four months of courage building because four months between, before the king of heaven makes the king of Persia and that four-minute conversation look really puny. And I love how chapter one ended with, um, he ends his prayer with, grant me, uh, where is it? Uh, and grant him mercy. Oh, grant me, Nehemiah saying, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. God, by the way, he's really important. He's the king. He can do anything. He doesn't say that. He's like, God, just grant me favor in this man's sight. This man, this guy that I work with. It's because four months before the king of heaven will change your perspective. I love Psalm 56 verse 4. Um, it's a good one that reminds us that if we like Nehemiah trust in God, we won't be swayed by humanity. Um, 
But the, Psalm 56 is a psalm where David, it, it says in the little description, he wrote it while he was in Gath, in the Philistine country, fleeing from Saul. And you might remember in the passage of Samuel, he, he starts drooling to act like a madman because he's like in enemy territory. Like, that's the future king. Kill him. Like, he, he, David's scared. And so in Psalm 56, he says, In God I trust, I shall not fear. What can mere flesh do to me? Nehemiah's prayer life is demonstrating trust in the king of heaven. So what can the king of Persia do? He's just an instrument in the hand of our good God. So he can courageously ask and God brings favor. So... To pray patiently and powerfully like this, we, brothers and sisters, need, and I'll make this super brief because we've said this many times before, but we need a prayer rule. That's my terminology. You need a prayer expectation where you make a covenant with yourself, this is how I pray, and this is what I'm aiming for in prayer, so that we don't get lazy and slack off. We need it. For more on that, you can listen to the message in Daniel 6. We revisit that concept. But we need purposeful prayer, and we need to hold ourselves accountable to it. Second, uh, second, uh, the good, the hand of God will come alongside us, carry the weight with us. We need to persist in patient prayer. But second, we need to commit to close knit community. We need to commit to close knit community. So you're gonna have a burden, and if you're doing the Christian faith by yourself, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of like John Wayne, like I'm just this brave wilderness guy. I can do everything on my own. I'm a pioneer. Um, you're never going to do much for the kingdom of God because God has designed us to do this together as a body. Um, we need to commit to close knit community because a community helps to carry the burden. So prayer lifts the burden up to God. But a community will help shoulder the burden alongside us and will help make it possible. Because no one of us has all the gifts. So you see this in chapter 3. You didn't read it because it's not great reading. You could help you fall asleep. Um, it's very repetitive, but all you need to see is a few verses to get the idea of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrate it, set its doors. They consecrate it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. It goes on like that. Um, I want you guys to look also at... I need to find a better example. Um, Look at verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, and it just goes down the list, and you get what Nehemiah is doing. He's giving us a log of those who were repairing the wall or the gate and where they were doing it, and he's going down the row. He's saying, Bob built here, so Dan built next to him, so William built next to him and his household with Nacelle. And be next to them was Trevor, and next to them were the Robles family and he's going down the list and he's showing us that no one was responsible for just putting up this whole east side of the wall they're doing this next to each other and chapter 3 mentions the name of the word house 12 times what's going on they're not only building alongside each other but they are in each other's homes they are encouraging each other in the work. They are with one another, one heart, one soul, as Acts 4 describes the church. So we must commit to a close-knit community if we want to see our burdens rebuild the ruins of this world. Nehemiah could have just been this high, up-class dude like coming from the ivory tower, like, let me spew pearls of wisdom to y'all, and you all do it. Um, he could have done that. But instead, he leaves the court and comes to the city. And then, he doesn't just live in some palace in the city. He joins the homes. That's what chapter 3 shows. Nehemiah cared enough to know where people lived, where they worked, and to name their house, their address. Nehemiah came, like Christ, to live in the neighborhood. And third, we must give all glory to God. We must... uh, 
we must persist in patient prayer. We must commit to close knit. To we must commit to close knit community. I didn't even know that rhymed until just now. Uh, and then we must give glory to God. Your burden will crush you if you don't give glory to God. That simple. Burdens become unbearable when we carry glory. Now, I didn't realize this until a couple years ago. When Pastor Mike, who is here, by the way, if you didn't get to say hi to him. When Pastor Mike transitioned the church to me, there was suddenly this huge burden. But not the kind of like, I just love these people so much, my heart breaks from them. It's more like, I am being crushed by the weight of what is now happening. And what God showed me is that when I care too much about what people think of me, in other words, when I care too much about my self-esteem and glory, I will be crushed. So here's how Psalm 115 puts it. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. His preschool psalm was Psalm 115. Um, Great call and response, Addie. That was great psalmic call and response. But to your name, we give the glory. Glory in the Hebrew is kavod. Kavod means to be heavy, to be weighty. In some cases, it means to be burdensome. You want to carry that? This is what God is saying. God is not demanding glory because he is, as C.S. Lewis puts it, sorry if this offends you, but it's the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, God is not like a woman seeking compliments in a dress. He says that that's not why God is asking for glory. God is asking for glory because he knows that it will crush us. Give me praise. Give me glory because otherwise you are not going to be able to walk straight. So what Nehemiah does in 2 verse 17 is he does exactly this. It's very subtle, but it's so there. In 2.17, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Did anyone notice this when we read it? Come, let us build ourselves a tower and make a name for ourselves. It is the same phrase you find in Genesis 11, verse 4, when the builders of the original Babylon, the Tower of Babel, get to work. They want to build a tower because towers are glory. Well, there's actually much better reasons, but for our purposes, we'll talk about the fact that it's a glory symbol. And um, we will also look at the fact that they wanted to make a name for themselves with this tower, not Nehemiah. He intentionally reverses the problem where all this came from. And he says, come, let us build not a tower, but a wall. How anticlimactic. Where are the neon signs and the strobe lights coming from the tower and fireworks and pyrotechnics that that can provide? Where's the fancy, wow, look what man has done. This tower is amazing. Where is all of that? You want us to build a wall? God's more interested in having the church protect his glory and giving him the glory. That's our towers lifting our praise to him. It's not in what we accomplish or build. Nehemiah is protecting God's glory. So may God give to us a burden to make Babylon unbearable. May we leave Babylon and build the walls of Jerusalem together. Amen.